You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Okay, so we paused for a little bit because we were going through a Lenten season in which we were preaching on the prayers that we are currently praying. But before we did that, we were making this whole series trip through the book of Luke. And uh, I want to go back to that now for a little bit, unless the Spirit leads otherwise. So today I want to I look into Luke. We're going to find ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount, except Luke has it a little different. It's worded a little different. Uh, he has some variations from Matthew. People tend to know Matthew better. Beatitudes are the whole, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, those kinds of things. But, but with Luke, he adds woes as well. And before we get there, I just kind of want to take a look through the Bible to kind of set us up for some of the direction in which think, I think Jesus is going. So when we look at the scriptures, we come across a lot of drive for power, a lot of hunger for wealth, power, and a lot of the Bible writers go so far as to sometimes seem to equate all these things with the blessing of God. And it's not that God can't be in those kinds of moments. I think like Kayla was talking about earlier, those are kind of like those feasting moments can come around. But the reason that God blessed Israel in the first place was so that they would, anybody, be a blessing to other people. Their blessings were to be shared with the rest of the world. In fact, in Jesus' time, almsgiving, or the idea of giving to the poor, was like considered the most important good thing that you could do. That's part of the reason you see this almsgiving uh, um, theme come up throughout the New Testament. Cornelius, he's one of the first Gentiles to be welcomed into the faith. What does it mention that Cornelius was doing? His almsgiving. He was giving to the poor. So here are the Jews of Jesus' time knowing that your blessings, blessing other people, are crucial. And the first person that's brought into the faith is, is from the outside is, is somebody who is doing just that, taking care of the poor among them. But oftentimes when we find ourselves in blessing, uh, we don't do that. We can hoard, we can bring it to ourselves, and we can get caught up in and I think what Jesus would consider sometimes woes. But before we get to all that, just go back to the beginning of the Bible. You'll see that people are hungry for power, they're hungry for wealth, they're hungry for all kinds of things. To get on top of other people, to take the authority that's been given them as a human being made in the image of God, and try to exert that authority among other people made in the image of God. I mean, that's really the story of the Bible. Over and over and over again, if people are given power, authority, wealth, suddenly it becomes this oppressive force rather than this force that distributes itself to take care of everybody on the planet. And so right with Adam and Eve at the beginning, you have them cave to the temptation of power. Satan wiggles up as a little G God within the uh, uh, sacred space of the Garden of Eden. And the snake says, you could eat this, then you'd be like one of the gods. We usually read that and think it says, you would be like God. And you can interpret it that way, but the word for God is Elohim, 
which is like deer. Deer is singular, deer is plural. Based on how many deer you see, you choose what its meaning was, singular or plural. So here wriggles up this little G God, this spiritual being in God's garden, comes up to Eve and is like, you could be like one of us, the gods. If you just take this, then you can have all the power, then you could have all the wisdom, then you could have all the wealth. And she takes it, gives it to Adam, and they take and eat. And, and you see this pattern continue to happen. God later blesses Abraham and Sarah, tells them that they have this great destiny, they're going to have a kid. And yet the same repetition happens again, where they decide to take it into their own power, their own control. And the language is the same as the tree of the Garden of Eden. Sarah takes her servant and gives it. To Abraham to try to come up with their own strategy of power as to have a child because they're tired of waiting for God to figure it out. You keep fast forwarding and you see that even when people are trying to do good things in the name of, in the name of God, they still end up doing things that are rather evil looking or at least not great, bad, right? Joseph is one example. Joseph Joseph is uh, oppressed for quite a while. His brothers try to kill him, but then they're like, well, we can make some money off him instead. Let's go ahead and sell him. They sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph is at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. He's later slandered. Gossip is spoken over him, which gets him thrown in jail for a long time. Joseph plays the bottom of powerlessness the whole way. He plays the bottom of having no authority. But God plans a way for him to get out. And he soon finds himself at the top of power and authority. He's a Hebrew in the Egyptian lands, but he has become so monumental that he's now like serving all the way at the top of a, the Egyptian hierarchy. Not, not the very top, but he's, he's way up there. And what does Joseph do with all this power that he's inherited? He was once oppressed, and now he kind of becomes an oppressor. People can debate about this because he technically does save Egypt. Like they, they had a famine and it was bad. She ever noticed that Joseph, like all the Egyptians come to him, they're like, we're starving. And he's like, okay, give me all your money. <laughs> and they give him all his money. And they come back like, we're still starving. He's like, okay, give me all your animals. And he takes all their animals. And they come back in, we're still starving. He's like, okay, sign all your land over to me. Joseph, who once was at the bottom of the ladder as an oppressed individual, has taken on power, and now he becomes the oppressor of all of Egypt. And we can debate about it because technically he saves their lives by taking all their stuff and distributing it to take care of them. But usually enslaving people is not the way to fix your problems. Um, but that's the way that, that Joseph went. And that backfired on him. Because you know what happens when you take the power and authority that you're given and you exert it over other people? It creates what one famous uh, scholar calls the domination cycle. I played this out in a Dungeons and Dragons campaign once where I created a multiverse. It was this really peaceful race. And all they could think about was peace. And when people visited their planet, it was like utopia. They were caring for one another. If you hurt them, they would love you back, things like that. But then they went into the multiverse on the other side of things. They came across the same race. But in this side of the multiverse, they rose up against their oppressors. And they dominated their oppressors. And they actually became even worse than what their oppressors did to them. They, they became ten times worse. 
That's the story of the Bible. That's a story of history over and over again. Oppressors rise up to take back, uh, to stop the oppression against them, but they do it in the violent ways of the kingdoms of this world, which just cycles into more and more violence. It's the domination cycle. And Joseph, perhaps unknowingly, because it was good in his time for him, has put that into play. So when Joseph dies, and a pharaoh comes up later who doesn't even know who Joseph is, he just looks out and sees all these Hebrews, and they probably remember how the Hebrews had enslaved them. Well, now the tide has changed. And suddenly, all of the Hebrews are enslaved, and they become a workhorse power to keep all of Egypt flowing forward in wealth and prosperity. They enslave them into place, they beat them into place, they make sure that they feel so uh, caught up in submission that they can't run away. And it cycles itself. Power has overtaken itself, and now the people who were once at the top are at the bottom, and the people who were once at the bottom are at the top. But we've just created another cycle. Because God eventually comes and frees all of the Hebrews. He saves them from the oppressive Egypt. And throughout the rest of the Bible, Egypt is going to be remembered as that force which we should never be like. The oppression, the slavery, the workhorse style of living, the hurting, the pain, the trying to get rich off of someone else's back. Egypt, when you see that word come up throughout your Bible, you should remember that's the prime example. Don't be like that. That's Babylon. That's America. That's the way when we, when we live off the benefit of other people. That's, that's what that's like. And so God tells these Hebrews that he's now saved. He's like, look, my whole thing is love. <laughs> That's how it works. So commandment number one, I'm the Lord your God. Uh, you do what, what I say, and you are going to represent me well. And guess what? God's going to ensure that his people represent him, whether it's positive or negative. If the Hebrews do good... They're going to experience the blessing of God that will cause them to bless others. But if God pours out blessing on the Hebrews and they waste it and they use it to oppress others, God's like, I'll still make an example out of that. And you guys will find yourself caught back in the ways of Egypt. The Hebrews have this covenant with God. You either follow me and I make you a good example, or you follow me and I make you a good example to the rest of the world is what happens when you don't love like I've called you to love. God does not want his name to be tainted. They are supposed to be his example to everybody else. So that's what he calls them to. And they learn very early on that they struggle to take all that power and wealth and use it well for God. They break all their laws all the time. The book of Judges is a funny sad book you just read it it's the same story over and over again first we got this guy and it was great and he led us into the victory of god and then and then he worshiped a vest <laughs> why did he do that I, he, he went mad with power of course you go mad with power you ever try going mad without power no one listens to you it's a quote from the simpsons i just thought i'd throw it in there it's, he goes mad with power. And this continues to happen until you get a, a physically strong, powerful person. Samson, right? Samson's like our last judge. We're like, this is the one. He's got the power of God, the strength of the spirit on him. He's going to show us how to do this. Oh, the biggest failure. 
I love that we glorify Samson these days and that Hollywood's like, let's make Christian media, man movie, Samson, let's do it. Yeah, tie them foxtails together and send them out with flames and torches. Well, no, Samson was a bad example. <laughs> That's his whole point in the story. God pours out power on Samson and he uses it to, to just destroy everyone around him. He's like, oh, dude, you missed the point again, right? You follow the story forward, it's just this, over and over again. And I think a lot of times we miss, when the Bible's often trying to critique wealth and power, we miss it the wrong way, like Samson. A lot of people look at Samson as like, here's a good example of God's strength on someone to take out your enemies. Samson is literally the antithesis of that. The story was written so that you'd be like, wow, look how bad the judges have got. Even the, like, God's holy leaders can't do this right. And when you get to the kings, a lot of time we raise up the good kings, like David or Solomon, but the Bible critiques them strongly. We weren't even supposed to have kings. When God's people got kings, it was because they were trying to fight with God. We want kings like everybody else. Let us live that lifestyle. We don't want to just have this kind of like spiritual democracy between God and us and his priests and all that. We want, to, we want a king like everybody else. We want to do it that way. And God says to Samuel to tell the people this. If you want a king, I'm going to let you have it. But he's going to enslave you. He's going to kill you. He's going to turn you into your, his uh, workforce. He's going to basically make you Egypt. Because that's where this kind of stuff always ends up reverting back to. And Israel says, amen, we'll take it. And then they set themselves up for future failures over and over again. David, while he may have been one of the better kings, did some pretty heinous things. But we're still voting for the underdog. David was the underdog. If he gets power and wealth, maybe it'll work out. It doesn't. Solomon, Solomon's the underdog. He's not from the family in such a way that he should take up his reign next. Yet Solomon takes it. And then Solomon has this genie moment with God. You remember this? God shows up kind of like a genie. He's like, what do you want? And he sings this whole song from Aladdin. And then, uh, and then Solomon kind of surprises us all. It's like, if I wanted anything, I want your wisdom, God. We're like, yes, a king who finally has God's wisdom. That's what we were offered in the very beginning. That's what Adam and Eve were offered, to have wisdom from God, not from the tree. Solomon takes the wisdom. But then what happens? He uses it to become the richest, most oppressive force. He does all the things that kings were not supposed to do. He breaks the laws. But a lot of time when we read, the, uh, when we read Solomon's story, let me get this. A lot of times when we read Solomon's story, we think that it's just saying all these good things about Solomon. Like, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then we get to the very end of Solomon, and suddenly it's like, and Solomon did all these things he wasn't supposed to do. We're like, well, that was a switch. What happened? Scholars have started to point out that we're missing irony in that book. That Solomon's supposed to be an example of, what if you were given God's wisdom and then perverted it? What if you were given God's blessings and then used it wrongly? What if you had all the wealth, all the riches, all the power, what would happen? And if you listen to the sarcastic tone from the person who's writing Solomon's story, there's always this kind of like, and he, uh, he did it all right. 
And he had everything he wanted kind of feel. We're not usually very good at catching ancient sarcasm. And we could argue if that's there, but it makes the end of Solomon's story make a whole lot more sense when you realize the writers are like the power and authority that he had, the wisdom of God that he had. He took all of that and he just used it for Egyptian-like ways. And so we keep following that story all throughout history, all throughout the Old Testament. But when you get to the New Testament with Jesus, Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not when you've seen the Old Testament, you've seen the Father. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All scripture is God-breathed, but if you really, really, really want to know what God is actually like, you need to start with Jesus and work backwards. We often want to take the Old Testament and cram Jesus into it. You need to take Jesus and cram the Old Testament into him. Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And when Jesus comes around, he does this whole deconstruction thing. I know the church is always like, oh, deconstruction, bad. But Jesus constantly says, you've heard it said this, but I tell you. That's ancient deconstruction. You've heard it like this, but let me tell you something different. And Jesus begins to show us that's not the power and authority of trying to get to the top. It's, it's the lowliness of trying to dig to the bottom. It's the washing of the feet of your disciples. It's the making yourself lowly like a slave. It's the servanthood. It's the meekness, the gentleness, the kindness. It's the reaching the poor and the destitute and the prostitutes and the lepers and the tax collectors and the sinners and the people that nobody wanted to be around either morally or physically. Those are the ways in which we engage in what God is calling. We make our way down to the bottom to the bottom, to the bottom. And before we get to this grand scale of I need power and authority, Jesus says the greatest power and authority I ever got was on my throne, which was across the electric chair. As people drove me into that cross and nailed me there and left me to bleed out every breath I'm taking, having to lift my body up in pure agony to inhale another breath. That was Jesus' highest point. We all know that song. See you high and lifted up. You know that's about the cross? You should feel bad about singing that now. Jesus, we want to see you high and lifted up. How dare you? That's what the Bible passage is referencing. Jesus' glory up on the cross, breaking the curse on the tree. Jesus keeps making his way to the bottom, and he tells us over and over again that that's actually making your way to the top. His disciples are funny. They're constantly trying to do the Egyptian way. We're going to Jerusalem. Now's a great time to buy swords. We got to this town. Nobody let us, let us in. Now's a great time to call down fire from heaven and burn this place to the ground. We did A, B, C, D. Hey, Jesus, which one of us is going to be the greatest in heaven, by the way? Really, this is what you guys fight about. Have you listened to anything I've said lately? <laughs> And you see Jesus keep trying to lead his disciples toward lowliness, but they're always trying to make their way higher up. But Jesus is trying to teach them a controversial, backwards, topsy-turny way of heaven. To be first in heaven, you have to be last on earth. And you would be surprised how much that topic comes up. I'm working on a book right now, which is probably not even fair to say, because this is the laziest book I've ever written. I'm just collecting passages from the New Testament to make a point on a topic. 
and just filling up the whole book with. Here's every passage that implies my point. So as I'm reading through the New Testament to do this, I've noticed over and over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus is always talking about the first on earth or the last in heaven. This kind of theme manifests itself all the time. I know that's a popular passage that we quote all the time, but it's popular for the Bible too. It shows up a lot that humility is the way. And when Jesus comes and talks about his kingdom in heaven, he comes and gives us the Beatitudes. And here's what he says, and here's how Luke writes it down. Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for so did their fathers, so for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus is pointing us toward the resurrection. We just talked about this last week for Easter. There is a new age coming. Well, that sounded new agey, didn't it? There is a eternal age coming. <laughs> An age after this, when we put on the resurrected bodies and we live again. And the day of the Lord of judgment comes. And God pours out every single human being who has ever lived in this time all throughout history and judges us all for everything that we've done. There's nothing we get to hide. It's all laid bare for everybody to see. And those who get into eternity on that moment, that's why Jesus says you are blessed in this time. There's going to be lots of people living on the side of the road, trying to scrape by, could never make ends meet, who are going to be kings and queens in heaven. Well, there's going to be lots of people who scrape, uh, didn't have to scrape by and did just fine, who are going to find the tables reversed. Their selfishness in this life will find its, its selfishness and, and a problem in the next life. Jesus comes and he tells us that there is a, a, a twist that's on its way. The underdog story that we love, that person that makes their way to the top, that's what heaven is. It's the underdog story of all underdog stories. Where everyone who, who found the difficulty in this life and just kept getting shoved to the bottom, God has a special eye on them. He always has. That's why the prophets are always talking about them. The little ones, the suffering ones, the widows, the orphans, they're first in heaven. Those at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, they're the first in heaven. Those who experienced problems of race, that the world kept coming down on them and they couldn't push forward in this life, they're first in heaven. 
And those of us who continued to create those dynamics that kept those problems in order, woe to us. It's not that God doesn't want to bless us. It's not that he doesn't want to love us. It's not that um, uh, we can't have uh, the things that we need to survive or that we are supposed to live lives of, of just absolute desolate poverty. But we are called to take everything that we have and say it's not about this life right now. It's about the life that is to come. And if I miss out on everything there is to offer right now, well, one day I'm going to be given back this world. And I will be able to experience it with so much more fullness than I experienced right now. So when you are handed power, when you are handed authority, give it to Jesus who teaches you how to wash feet. Give it to Jesus who teaches you how to hang on a cross. Give it to Jesus who wants to subject it to the blessings of lowliness rather than the woes of the riches that that can provide. Only God is our judge, each and one of, every one of us. But he's inviting us to follow the topsy-turvy, upside-down kingdom of heaven. And people need that. I know a person who cannot get by. Their bills do not, their income does not pay their bills. They don't understand the legal stuff well enough to get the governmental care that is owed them. One of their children has been expelled. The other kids have no child care. They can't get a job because if they leave, they would have to pay for child care or just leave these young children alone and risk it just to try to scrape by. They had a job for a little bit, but their abusive ex came and started slamming on the door, so they fired them. They've tried to serve their abusive ex too many times out of manipulation, which has just created more problems, even to the point of bleeding in the head. They sell their own plasma every single week just to get by, and that's just if they're not sick so that they can sell their plasma. That person, first in heaven, last on earth. Jesus has a special eye for them. And because Jesus has a special eye for them, he has special attention on how we treat them. For when you've done it for the least of these, you did it for me. And Jesus' whole sorting system in heaven is kind of that way. Did you do it, take care of them, or did you not do it? And that's one of the things we need to continue to lean into here at 1208. It's one of our prayer requests. God teaches how to reach our community. That's part of what the dinners are supposed to do next month. We do it once a month just to bring in the community and get to befriend them. But I'm reminded this week that God also called us over the last few years to reach people. Uh, we just kind of got the word wick, you know, women and children. And I think we've kind of like, with everything that we've been trying to do, we've kind of set that one aside. And I, I want to keep leaning into that to figure out how to, to really serve women and children uh, especially when they find themselves in situations like the one I just mentioned. So God, here we are. Uh, your spirit has special eye on these people, knows how to reach them, and we need you to give us not only the education on how to do that, but warm our hearts so that we have the conviction to do that. Because it is so easy 
to just scrape by and not pay attention to those who are going through difficulty. It is even easier when we are just filled up with so much stuff that we don't even have an eye on the people around us. We need your help. We need our hearts convicted. We want to be like Jesus, who was the true image of God, who had more power and authority than anyone and sits on the throne of heaven and yet exerts his power in the strangest ways. Teach us to be like that. In Jesus' name, amen.